This podcast is brought to you by StoryKingBooks.com. Sign up to receive a free copy of my latest ebook novella, Kane's Confession. If you would like to learn how to support this show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the Story King. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is filmmaker and screenwriter George Atkinson. George Atkinson wrote his first scripts as a child, and by the age of eight, his scripts were being performed at a small local theater. By 16, the Pyramid Arts Center in the northwest of England's large town of Warrington had invited him to premiere his first short film. He founded Effortless Pictures in his 20s, and we'll be discussing several of his recent projects, including the short film Grace, in this interview. So let's get right to it. Here is my conversation with George Atkinson. Well, welcome to the Story King podcast, George. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. What I tell all my guests is I want to hear about their story first. So who are you and what are you about, George? That's a um, pretty good uh, opening question. That uh, Because when, you, when you're British, you're not sort of prepared to sort of talk about yourself. It's a, it's a very bizarre cultural thing. I remember when I was in America, uh, and especially in like um, Los Angeles, they always say, what's your story? And hmm. um, I go, oh, I don't know. Um, you know, <laughs> just, just sort of it. Um, I grew up in uh, the Scottish countryside. There wasn't much to do. So I just watched a ton of television, unhealthy amounts. Um, and, uh, you know, was absolutely obsessed by films and, and TV and particularly uh, science fiction. And um, I, I wanted to do it. And my mum and dad are very confident people. And so that sort of confidence sort of tr- that was like a trickle down effect. And um, I decided, right, well, I can do that. And um, I, I can do film, I can do TV. And sort of filled with a lot of naivety, brashness and confidence <laughs> when, you're, when you're very young. I just went, right, well, that's it. And I, I really decided to just try to learn um, everything I could about well, anything to do with TV and film. And um, then I got into YouTube at the age of 21. I'm skipping a few things here, but just for time. And I started reviewing fragrances on YouTube, but I I added like my own sort of cinematic flair, I suppose. And I tried to make the fragrance reviews, not just like regular fragrance reviews, but I would say, for example, there was a fragrance that reminded me of a beach I would go and take it to a beach and, and shoot it like it was a film. Uh, yeah. And so that became a very successful, a surprisingly successful endeavor. So much so that it sort of took me away a little bit from filming, filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, because I thought, well, I am filmmaking. I'm, I've, I've got this YouTube channel and I'm doing all these films, but you can't submit a fragrance review to a film festival. Right. Um, and so I thought, no, I've, I've got to get back on the, the horse and I've got to do something. And um, so I decided to kind of get a, a script that I'd written back in film school when I was 23, 24, which is Grace. 
and earlier this year we we shot it and um now it's being released it's going to be going into film festivals either june or july it starts um and so there we go and here we are <laughs> awesome so let me back up uh, a little bit so you said you were watching unhealthy amounts of television. So why don't you tell me what are some of your favorite shows and even movies, directors that inspire you? Like who who are who do you look up to? Well, I just um, it's very funny. Just uh, hopefully I've um, answered the question of why my name on the Zoom is is the Fragrance Apprentice rather than George Atkins. I was I going to ask. That. I was like, who the heck is this? That's my YouTube. <laughs> But that's no, uh, that's where you that's got the it. YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I, did, I forgot to change it, but oh, it'll be fine. Um, it'll be it'll be okay. I'll do the fragrance apprentice. But um, yeah, so the first thing that really caught my attention was Star Trek, the Next Generation, Star Trek Voyager in particular, mm -hmm. and I was just astounded by the fact that each and every episode they just thought of something new and you felt as though you were really involved with the characters and um some of the stories were very mind-bending mm -hmm. and um sort of challenging and i liked it I, I liked um i liked the stories that had mysteries that you know and some of the time travel and the, the cleverness of it i found really interesting just the fact that it was there would be like a clever twist or something and it would make you feel like sort of astonished and um when you're growing up in you know countryside where there, there's literally you, you go outside and there's just fields mm -hmm. and um i've learned to appreciate that more now and i like a good bit of countryside and everything like that but there was no excitement uh, and just the fact that you know they were, they were traveling and seeing new worlds and everything like that just really fascinated me but I think that the film that sort of made me go, this is um, this is something else, is uh, was the Matrix. Mm. Good one, yeah. Um, and of course, you watch the Matrix now, and uh, it's kind of like the Star Wars of its day. It's it's a, been a bit dated and and everything. But when the Matrix came out, it's hard to explain to somebody who, you know, was born in like 2000, 2005 or something, when The Matrix came out and those effects and the, the bullet time and all that, it was, it, it was like mind-blowing. And uh, me at the age of, I don't know when that came out, I must have been six, seven. Mm. And we got it on v VHS, right. <laughs> of course. Um, and me and my, uh, my mum watched it and... I just was like, I don't know what, what I've just seen, but I know that I want to be a part of it. Yeah, The Matrix, too. What fascinated me about that is just the whole concept, right? So even beyond the special effects, the concept of everyone's in a computer simulation and yeah. their real selves are completely asleep just mm. fascinated me, you know? And, and obviously, there's all these metaphors to it, right? So th that idea has just been blown me away ever since <laughs> you know? well what's lovely is that you you know when i was young i saw you know keanu reeves falling backwards and the you know the camera shots mm -hmm. and everything but as i grew older it developed and i went oh right you know the idea of the metaphor of we're all sort of 
asleep and we're, we're all very um, sort of interlinked into our habits and we can't get out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And it really, really grew. And, and I, I watched it recently. I watched it about two years ago. And I remember just thinking that still holds up. It's a shame about the second and the third film, right. um, which were absolutely naff, as we say here in Britain. <laughs> but they, you know, they had a story to tell. I mean, in a way, it's sort of like quite amusing because the, the whole um, story of the beginning is, is that society is um, sort of an illusion that we dream and we buy into and, and, and we, we're sort of a slave to it. And the second and the third film got made because the Wachowskis were offered a ton of money right. by Warner Brothers. <laughs> and they said, just please, just do, do it again, do it again. And so they actually ironically fell into that system. Right. You know? um, so that was quite ironic. Yeah. Yeah. So you obviously wanted to be a filmmaker pretty much your whole life, it sounds like. Was that fair to say? It's been a surprisingly long time. You know, right. I... Um, it was a bit alienating and it was a bit sort of lonely because I made my first, well, I, I call it a film. It was more a disaster when I was 15. Um, and we got, 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 we, we showed it at like this art, art place in um, where I was living uh, at the time called Warrington. It was a disaster because it was a 15 year old trying to make a, a feature film. But I remember around about that time, 15, 16, and I'd been school and I'd say to people, do you know what you want to do, you know, when you grow up effectively? Mm-hmm. And they just didn't know. They had no idea. And I remember this sort of moment going, if you commit to this, you, you, you probably can't be anything else. Right. Because it is like to, to get it done and, and to get, you know, you have to master it, right? You know, you don't, you can't, um, you can't deviate from it. And you got to go all of, in. It's kind of, yeah, Richard Linkladder, um, who did School of Rock, and um, what else did he do? Dazed and Confused, which was Matthew McConaughey's first role. Mm-hmm. He um, compared it to, you know, becoming a monk. Like you give your <laughs> right. clothes to the to, to the religion, right. right? And 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 that's it, and you're in, and you can't, you know you can't really get out. Well, you can, but if you're going to go for it, then there's a devotion to it. It's a devotion. That's the word. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, uh, I know you write your own scripts. Do you produce direct other people's scripts too, or is it mainly just your own work at the moment? So we actually are in talks with um, an an award-winning science fiction um, screenwriter um, to do our, our next short Oh, nice. Um, he's actually, uh, he actually had a script for sale and, um, I've loved his work. I can, I can say his, um, I can say his name, but I just don't want to go too much into it because, you know, the, the deal hasn't been completely made yet. Um, but I don't think you, you wouldn't mind if you're right. Gentleman by the name of Scott Nelson and, and his, um, he does a lot of short film scripts and he's done that. He's written one or two features, but I actually think that shorts are just so clever and, uh, they have all of the great, sort of classic tropes of science fiction. And of course I grew up with science fiction in film and its stories or 12, seven, 12 minute films. That that's impossible. I can't write like that. I can't write that short. Right. You know, I, I, um, I can do short dramas and I could potentially do maybe a short comedy, but short sort of high concept science fiction. 
that's not something I could do and not something I'd, I'd have faith in myself to do. Um, but he's great. And so, yeah, we, we have got something. And we the first time I've directed something that I haven't written. But I like that. And would you ever write something for somebody else to produce? You know, would you ever act as screenwriter or that's not really your thing? Um, I think, I think never say never. I think that, um, problem with me is I'm, I do love my, my scripts and Mm -hmm. I do love my characters and I get a very specific idea of what I want them to, to be. So every, every director, even if they aren't a writer, they're creative and they'll have their own ideas about things. And it's just the, that's how it is. And that's the name of the game. So I know that if I was to give somebody, somebody something, Mm-hmm. Um, to direct, I know that it wouldn't be the same script that I wrote by the end of it. Right. Um, so I'd probably have to write something in which I'd go, okay, well, I've got an idea and that's great, but I, I, I'd be interested to see what somebody else does with that. Right. Like you can't be too married to it if you're going to have somebody no. else make it, right? No. So there are several projects of yours I'd like to discuss. We'll start with your short film grace what's interesting to me is i I watched it and i can see you're into science fiction but this is a very serious movie i would say you know yeah uh drama so what is this one about without giving too much away and what inspired you to make this particular film it's a funny it's a funny thing because i you know what's it what's it about i've never really mastered that sort of part of the pitching process, which is, which is unfortunate because that's the really important part. Right. <laughs> you know, like I should probably try and fix that. Um, I suppose that one person could watch it and go, it's about choice. Um, another person could watch it and think it's about um, integrity, loyalty, but it's essentially, it's a, a young woman who, you know, married a man. Uh, they're both quite young, relatively young, they had a, you know, a future together, rest of their lives, and uh, the the husband got ill, and he um, he got what's known as uh, either ALS or MND uh, over here, motor neuron disease, and um, she is in a situation where that's been going on for a while, and then uh, somebody appears at the door who kind of subtly offers her a a different life Mm -hmm. from the one that she has and struggles of the ones that that she has. And I wanted it to be kind of a meditation on the fact that it's not as simple as people may think. Uh, And that people in those situations, there's no black and white, there's quite a few shades of gray. I think that that was my start. That's usually my starting point with short films because you haven't got a lot of time. Mm-hmm. A lot of short films that I see are ironically sci-fi or horror, and it's just getting, you know, stab a bunch of people and get out. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's, that's all fine and dandy. There's usually a lot of short films with, with twist endings and things like that. That's a real thing that people love in short films. I don't mind them. I, I'm, I'm a fan of those as well. And it, it, it's fun because it works. But I thought, what, it, what if you could do a, a film that has no gimmicks and that has no crutches and just something that is 
kind of straight to the bone and um, is just a, a straightforward drama. Mm-hmm. And that was what I wanted. And another thing is, is that if you can do a straightforward drama, then I think that your science fiction writing can, can become better. Right. A lot of science fiction films, they are like, we just like we kind of said, like some people will just see the effects, mm-hmm. but if you have a real story going through them and you know how to do that properly as a writer, then all of the effects and the razzmatazz and the twists and the, the fun science fiction elements can sort of be like the decoration where the core foundations are, is the actual drama of the characters. Well, that's exactly how Ray Bradbury wrote. I don't know if you're a fan of Ray Bradbury, Fahrenheit 451 and that sort of thing. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. That's precisely the kind of science fiction he writes. It's all about the drama and the science fiction, like you said, is sort of just the decoration of the story. Mm. It's not the main element. And I think that's how... um, that's that's a good way also to create i think science fiction shorts is just focus on the story while the the world around it is just sort of taken for granted but it's there you know so that's sort of a mm. uh, ray bradbury sign he was actually criticized for it for not writing like hard science fiction enough you know because he was more about the character and science fiction is traditionally about you know just the otherworldliness and and that sort of thing and the con the high concept as you said earlier so but uh, Ray Bradbury was was into that. But what what interests me about your film is that I don't think Hollywood explores commitment enough. You know, they like the mm. uh, you know the the euphoria of new romance. You know, and they explore that a lot, but they don't really uh, explore uh, what love actually looks like. And and uh, you, you see the woman struggling in in the movie Grace and. Mm. Uh, but at the end, she's still like committed to to her man, you know, and she's still like like uh, she's still showing love, like the, so. It's still a love story, but you mm. still like you said, it's not black and white. There's still frustration, and there's still choice, and uh, it's a very nuanced type of uh, subject that you explored there. So that's what I was impressed by mm. the film. Well, thank you. Um, the reason why Hollywood does that, and it's it's so funny because I see a lot of complaints with with Hollywood, and you can throw a lot of complaints to Hollywood, but there are things that I, of course, don't don't like, but I I can see where they're coming from most of the time, because at the end of the day, it's not called the film art; it's called the film business, right? And quite simply, nuanced and difficult stories are all very well and good, and you can. Um, there will obviously be an, always be an audience for them, but they're not maybe the, the most easily of marketable or marketing kind of films. Like, you know, even with Grace, you think, well, I make the film, but then Tracy, who who actually got me this interview, is is the person who will go, okay, well, how are we gonna how are we gonna promote it? Mm-hmm. What can we do to promote it? And marketing is. Everything. I actually saw a, a comment the other day saying that recently the trailers to a film have been far better than the actual film itself, right? right? <laughs> um, because the, the the marketing is is there is so much thought and energy and money put into uh, marketing of films, and we've had to sort of do our own hodgepodge version of of that and um, 
this is technically sort of part of that kind of press kit, you know, doing, doing mm -hmm. um, the interview. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's, it's a short film and people don't buy short films um, usually. Uh, there is, of course, an audience for them, but usually it's features. But um, yeah, you're right. Commitment is, uh, and what, what love actually looks like isn't really talked about and isn't really um, explored. And that is a shame because uh, you could get the uh, delusion that it's all supposed to be magical and, and, and wonderful and, and, and it can be, but there's also some, you know, thing, once things settle down, mm -hmm. you've got to maintain that and you've got to, you know, get, get real as it were. And, um, of course that's very successful and, and that's it's always that can be done but you're right there isn't enough film or tv that actually addresses that right so yeah. that's why it's a sort of a breath of fresh air to see that because uh you know and i think too maybe hollywood doesn't trust it like you said it is a business no. so they have to uh they have to go for what they think is going to sell, but I think they don't always get it right, you know? So they just, no. they have to spend a lot of money and they have to make choices of where they're going to spend that money. But I think, uh, you know, I, th I think commitment is something that should be explored more. And, and like, as you said, what love actually looks like, you know, and it's not always exciting, you know, so. Well, my thoughts are always the worst type of Hollywood is a frightened Hollywood. And what I mean by that is, is when they're, especially right, right now, the amount of generic garbage that you're going to see over the next probably two to three years because of coronavirus. Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, because everything was shut down because they're, yeah, the worst is that when, when there's no money in, in, um, in film, which there, there isn't as much as people think anyway, you know, films usually can lose money. Um, it's only the big, big films that make make money and they make stupendous amounts of money to the point where it's sort of uh, ridiculous. But they will be now thinking because of the fact that coronavirus happened, they will just, uh, and, 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 you know, financially, oof, you know, it was just really, really damaging. They're going to want to try and make films that will um, appeal to the largest of largest audiences so that they can get every in. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, with doing that, it will just be generic sh slosh. <laughs> so I'm not looking forward to the next Two couple to years. years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess we'll have to stay tuned on that. Now, you also released Searching for Secret Heroes. Is that yep. already out? Yeah, that's been out for a couple of years, yeah. And that's about yeah. music historian Sam Charters, right? And that his is wife? indeed. Yes, it is. Um, that was actually my dad's project. Ah. Um, and so um, that that's a, a bizarre story. Very, very... Uh, my, my dad owns a record label called Document Records, and um, they the record label is basically sort of like... It it's like a preservation kind of record label for blues musicians, pre-war blues musicians. Mm. And so most of the, the people who are signed to the label aren't even alive, huh. you know, you know, um, so, which, which makes them very easy to deal with, you know, when a new contract is coming up. Um, so it's, it's almost, you could argue more sort of like a museum in a way than a, than a record label. But my dad is very, very, uh, has always been passionate for his whole life about that. And, on a really, really bizarre chance meeting, they met Sam and Ann Charters, who are 
legends in that world because they did really the only film that captured the pre-war blues musicians when they were alive. Or well, some of the bigger names, you know, I wouldn't be, my dad would be able to tell you. Um, so my dad said, we've got to do a documentary. And um, he knew that I was interested in film. This is back in 2013 when I was, I don't know, 19 or 20 or something. And mm-hmm. um, he said, George, could, 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 could you film an interview with them? And so I did. And, and then we got a, a professional editor and they, they put something together and they made a, a little documentary that did well and it wasn't the most flash or razzmatazz documentary in the world but for people who loved that subject matter this this was honestly the documentary was like closure for some people hmm. you know as in they could see the film that, that sam and Anne had recorded and then um just sam talking about it and talking about the musicians that he met it was it was quite a cathartic experience i think for including my dad especially my dad, you know, so it was, uh, it was, it was a pleasure. It was a wonderful summer to have done that. It was great. That's very cool. So the sort of just documented their life, right? Put it into a, a movie. Is, is that a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we got them over for a summer and we, we just interviewed them talking about their time. I don't know when it was. I think it was like the, the late fifties when they went to the deep South which mm-hmm. is where a lot of the blues musicians lived. People like Pink Anderson, um, Ferry Lewis, uh, all these other names that have been sort of tattooed into my brain. Um, you know, I'm not the, the I'm not the official spokesperson for for really any of this. Mm-hmm. I just sort of know it through through my dad. But the documentary was them because they were in their oof, they were Sam was in his eighties. He's he's passed away now, unfortunately, a few years ago. Um, but, you know, they were they were in their eighties when they were with us in, in 2013 and they were talking about the trip that they'd taken in the fifties when mm-hmm. they were 20 or 30 some things. And so that was a documentary and it was, it was incredible to shoot because I think that it was, um, for me, I was just sat thinking, great, I get to shoot a documentary. How cool. Yay. But I, I could, there was a, a palpable emotional current Mm-hmm. whenever we, we did the interview sessions with them. And I think that my dad especially was, um, I think he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it really. It would be like me, you know, interviewing Martin Scorsese or um, Peter Weir, who I who I love. He did uh, Witness and The Truman Show. Mm. And I just love his philosophy around how mm-hmm. to make a film. It would be like me doing a documentary and sitting down with them and saying, what, what were your early experiences when you decided to make films? And that's like, kind of what my dad was doing. You know. It's like working with his hero, basically. Yeah. 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 That's very cool. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take the opportunity to let you know about a brand new resource I recently published. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, I've created an ebook called Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro that walks you through all the little details of producing and launching your own show. So for less than $5, you can own this resource by visiting storykingbooks.com or amazon.com. Those links will be in the show notes. And now back to today's episode. So let's talk about your science fiction. You're obviously into science fiction. You have uh, The Secret yeah. of Svalbard, if I'm uh, yes. pronouncing that correct, and that, Silver that's Anniversary. Good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Mm. So which one do you want to talk about first, that one or a silver anniversary? Oh, man. I mean, The Secret of Svalbard is um, it's kind of a pipe, pipe dream that had quite a good, some good momentum last year. And we were, um, it was a cheap TV series. Um, and I'd written the first five episodes. I did a series Bible. We started getting um, some casting options and we were trying to basically create a show um, or, or sort of get everything together to pitch to a production company mm-hmm. and say, we've done sort of all the legwork. What do you think? We pitched to a number of uh, Canadian uh, television uh, companies and the response was interesting and it sort of, this went on for a few months and it culminated with um, a conversation I had with a producer, executive TV producer. And she had tried to pitch a science fiction fantasy um, to a lot of the Canadian networks. And we had this sort of brief exchange and then she sent me an email basically detailing everything that we talked about and more. And she just basically said, look, this is a great series idea, but right now, if it's not a cop show, if it's not a lawyer show and it's not a doctor's show, they're not interested. Right. And it was funny, literally this morning, the BBC, which is our uh, British Broadcasting Corporation over here, um, it's like our main, our main, uh, station mm-hmm. they put out a uh, they put out like an advert on on Facebook that they, there's a new TV show with um, Martin Freeman and somebody literally wrote another cop show BBC come on get some original ideas <laughs> right and so I thought it's kind of everywhere and and, it's, and if it's not an established um, IP or intellectual property science fiction series if it's not based on a book or based on something that you, that, that there's probably like a fan base already. Mm-hmm. They don't want to touch it. They just don't want to touch it. And I haven't given up hope. I pitched a TV series way too early in my, in, 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 in my career, you know, and hopefully with a bit more momentum and, you know, the shorts and we're going to try and do a feature potentially next year, then I can maybe knock on the doors again and say, I'm still here and um, I still want to do this show. Right. I mean, reading about the premise, I, I, I found it really interesting that it's basically about a secret room of Nikola Tesla, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a secret. It's a, it's an invention. One of Nikola Tesla's sort of lost invention mm. and it's um, beneath Svalbard. God, I haven't talked about this in literally months. This is like, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't told this story in, in quite a while. Yeah, so I don't want to go too much, too far, too, too much into it, you know, sure. um, and too far because that, that one is quite precious. And also, I can't make it yet. You know, there is enormous amount of interest in anything Nikola Tesla. Yes. So- I feel like that's that's something that that should be explored more because there's a lot of interest in his stuff, you know, and there's conspiracy yeah. theories surrounding yes. his work and, you know, government stealing all the stuff after he dies and stuff. There's a lot of yeah. uh, interest in Nikola Tesla. So people not being 
supportive of that, I think, are missing the mark there. <laughs> you know? Well, I certainly thought so. It was something that I th- it's probably my favorite idea I've ever come up with. You know, really? and yeah, yeah, probably easily, easily. And, um, you know, I, I love Grace and I, I love even I've got some features that I'm writing now and, and they're probably more feasible and they're lovely and I'll, I'll put my heart and soul into them and I won't do anything that I don't believe in. Mm-hmm. But The Secret of Svalbard, I mean, it was a joy to write, especially by episode five. The cliffhanger of episode four is one of the most, uh, like, I can't believe I wrote that. <laughs> you know, That's like good. it's, um, yeah, it's good. And I think that it's just because... Um, it started to sort of write itself, and, and that's very rare. I, I, I hear a lot of writers kind of say that, but um, for me, it's a rare thing when something, something just kind of like like snowballs. Mm-hmm. And for me, The Secret of Svalbard felt as though it was just snowballing, and um, we probably got further down the pitching realm than we had any right to, mm. really. But hopefully in five or maybe less years we can look back at this interview and, and laugh and go, little did he know, right. You know, that it was <laughs> going to be, gonna be made. you know, it's difficult. It's, it's very, very difficult. And it is about who, you know, and it's about, it's a very, very kind of hard and almost confusing industry. Next, it, it really, but things go through really depending on the day. Right. You know, and that can be something, it can be really hard for people to navigate just the sheer sort of like, because, because nothing's, um, everything's subjective, right? So you can't, there's nothing too firm to hold on to at any given time. And you don't feel as though you're ever like on a, on a boat in a nice little river. You feel as though you're, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio hanging onto that door frame at the end of Titanic. Right. Most of the time. <laughs> and, you know, another thing too, that, and this is, uh, I want to go back to Silver Anniversary, but since you're mm. talking about this, you know, I'm always amazed at just the collaborative nature of filmmaking. And I wonder too, if that's part of the difficulty, like even you said, you know, maybe in five years, right. That's an mm. incredibly long amount of time for mm. an artist to have to wait to see their, their vision, you know, realize. So, you know, as a director, how much of your original, vision first of all do you retain how loose do you have to be with that original vision once other people get involved mm. in the project like the cast mm. the editors the camera crew it just seems like a hard a very difficult art to to try to navigate with uh getting different people involved and then trying to get financial backing mm. so talk about that the collaborative nature of filmmaking for a minute you have to know what you want or there's this kind of phrase, which is um, you have to control yourself or others will control you. Mm. Um, And that's very, if you don't have a strong enough sense of self and a sense of sort of self with the work, then other people will just think that they know better. The worst, God, I won't be able to be saying to be say things like this. Um, I won't be able to say things like this, should I say, um, once I get sort of further deep into the industry. But the worst ones are producers, <laughs> because that they are. Um, because they, if you're a direct, usually what it, what happens is that you're a producer and you hire a director, and you're as a producer, you've got the contacts, you know the money, you know how to get the money, you know how to do sort of 
everything um, organizationally. But the one thing that somebody who like that usually lacks is creativity. And so they hire the director to have the creative vision of them. But the worst ones are the ones who um, don't have the, a sort of a creative mindset, but they don't know it. Right. <laughs> and so they they will impose things and limits and they will not see the film or the TV show as art. They will see it as um, sort of Product. a vehicle to generate revenue. Yeah, mm -hmm. products and content. And that's like, and in some way, you've got to appreciate that. I appreciate any producer who's trying to go that route because I've learned from YouTube that if you don't do certain things at certain times in certain ways, you won't get any views. And there's no point in um, a film that has, you know, had 10 million thrown at it, not make any money. Mm -hmm. um, but you, so, so I try to go, I, I would try to go in with that mindset of sort of empathy and say, look, I, I understand, but we've got to keep the creative integrity of this film or it's just going to all crash and burn. And there's unfortunately too many examples that you can give with films that had promising starts and then they just, you know, crashed and burned. And, um, you know, but some films are able to make it if you know how to negotiate that. And one of the greatest negotiators of that in the history of film was, was Steven Spielberg. Mm. I mean, it's impossible to explain. He, he, he had no right to make those films as good as they were because they were creative. The creative integrity was brilliant. He was able to make the characters solid and interesting. Everything looked good and everything was commercially viable. And usually these days, people can either do one or the other. They can do great character stories and everything, or they can just do more commercially viable rubbish with Dwayne the Rock Johnson, you know, right. <laughs> know saving a kitten out of a, a burning building or whatever it is. But yes, it is a creative, um, it's, it's a collaborative endeavor, and you've also got to navigate that. Now, with the sound guy, he's not really too interested. He's... he's where do I where do I point this and, and what do you want? You know, is there mm -hmm. a certain sort of is this a close up? Do you want it to be in, you know very intense mm -hmm. and depth sound? Is it a you know like cinematographer? Of course, um, you usually do you know vetting, you know, and and you look at the previous person's work and you say, okay, well he he'll be able to fit this. In a way, almost everything is um, casting, including the crew. Right. Everything is auditioning. Everything is. You know, it's finding the right people. Right. That's going to work on your wavelength, yeah. Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's like back to our earlier point about Hollywood missing it. It's probably because a lot yeah. of decisions are made by businessmen. Oh, yes, that's true. To me, um, one of the most definitive examples of that is um, the amazing Spider-Man films. Mm -hmm. So you had Spider-Man with... Um, Toby, Tom McGuire, mm -hmm. and um, Sam, I, can, I can't remember. God, I should know his name. Uh, he did a lot of horror films. Very unusual choice, actually, for a Spider-Man film. Um, but uh, they, they picked a horror, horror director. And you look at those early Toby, Toby, Toby McGuire movies. Um, Mendez, Mendez, Sam Mendez. Oh, right. So, so Sam Mendez 
he's such a good and creative visual director. And so he does the first two, they're absolutely fantastic. And then I think that the studio had, you know, they knew, they, they thought, you know, Spider-Man, okay, Spider-Man's good, you know, um, but they didn't have too much faith in the film. They, they had some, they, they, you know, it was half and half. Spider-Man 3 comes and then that's when things start clashing because it's made a lot of money. It's so funny. It's so bizarre, actually, this, because let's say you're an independent sort of, um, you know, you, you give Sam Mendes the Spider-Man films and, and they go, look, just, just, just try not to break the bank. Right. Try and just break even, please. You know, it's Spider-Man. People love Spider-Man. So he does those first two films. Two, the second film is absolutely one of my favorite films of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, just such an incredible um, piece of work. And then the producers go, hang on, these films are making money. Oh my God, we've got to get, we've got to get in there quick before, before he makes the third film, let's give him some notes. And so they, well, we want Venom. And the producers go, ah, yeah, but Sandman isn't going to, you know, sell as many McDonald's toys because he isn't as well known with Spider-Man 1 and 2, Sam Mendes was given an, uh, basically free reign. Mm-hmm. And then in the third film, they say, well, we want Venom in it. We want Venom in the third film. And he goes, well, I don't want, I, I'm not really particularly au fait with Venom and I, I didn't really get it. I like the Sandman. I'd like to do the, the, the Sandman for the third film. Mm-hmm. And what they basically say to him is, is, well, that's all very well and good, but, um, you know, Sandman won't be as good a, mcdonald toy as venom will right. you know, venom's more marketable and, and he's more right. known and and everything which is um i don't actually know why sam mendes as a horror director didn't want to go for venom but that's you know I right i know um and so they just sort of shoehorned venom in there and um you could just tell there was just a complete clash of um ideas and mm-hmm. something was thrown in and sam mendes wasn't interested Hmm. And then what's even funnier is, is that, of course, they, they cancelled the fourth film and then they did The Amazing Spider- Spider-Man with Mark Webb. You can't write something like that. That's, that was the director's name, Mark Webb. And um, <laughs> couldn't write that. Andrew Garfield. And the reason why they made that film was no other reason than the film rights were running out mm. for Sony. And they had to make another film, a new Spider-Man film, or the rights would run out. And so it wasn't made because anybody had a creative vision or idea. Right. They were just like, we just want to keep Spider-Man. And so, you know, uh, that's... The nature of the beast. Terrible. (laughs) Yeah, terrible, yeah. So talk about Silver Anniversary. Let's uh, move on to that one. That's um, about an alien abduction, I understand. Well, it's about a, a son who was told by his mother that his dad was... Um, abducted by aliens. And so this uh, son, his name's Jason, goes back to the exact place where his dad was abducted 25 years ago. And over the course of the film, we have the mum basically explaining the truth Mm. about his dad, um, why she felt she had to tell that story to him. And it's uh, him having to find out who his dad really was. Hmm. So interesting. Again, good story. 
Um, bit of science fiction um, attached to it, but uh, yes, it's it's Scott Nelson's script, and um, it, it's a fu- it'll be a fun one to shoot. We're going to shoot it uh, on the Isle of Wight, which is um, where I live now, mm. and it's going to be shot over four days at golden hour. So basically, tw- just before twilight, uh, and that's going to be quite challenging. Right. But we want that aesthetic. We want that beautiful, you know, deep sunset aesthetic to make the film look um, pretty good. Well, good luck on that. Now, speaking of alien abduction, <laughs> what, do, what do you make of all these official UFO sighting reports? Uh, the Pentagon coming out with an official, uh, official report soon. What do you make of mm-hmm. all these UFO sightings? Um, I'm a huge lover of Bob Lazar. Um, I, I just, I mean, if he isn't telling the truth, then, um, fair enough, but man, he should have become an actor, <laughs> you know? And, and the thing that, that really freaks me out with him is that, cause I saw the Joe Rogan podcast, uh, with him. And I think the, the other guy who did the, the documentary, he recounted the events pretty much word for word. Mm. And he's in his, what is it? in his 60s now maybe yeah, i'm not sure late 60s and i just thought you know at this point you would either just come clean and just say look it's a load of rubbish or you would not be able to tell that same story as accurately and as perfectly as as he as he says it you know mm-hmm. um and with the gumption that he does so yeah i mean it's something I dip in and out of, but it's it's just very unlikely that we're alone in the universe. And um, you know, I have a friend who's really really big into that. He believes, oh yeah, we've been we've been visited and, and all that kind of stuff. But if mm-hmm. the Pentagon is saying, well, we, we don't even know what's going on, then you know, that's that's got to be something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting times we're living in. So we're just about out of time. What would you tell the next generation coming up, looking to get into film? What piece of advice, nugget of wisdom, key takeaway you can leave for our listeners that are hoping to get into the film industry at some point? I think that my biggest piece of advice is um, get on with it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, Just get on with it and and do it. I wasted a bit of time sort of, I guess, procrastinating and, and sticking with my comfort zone, which was YouTube. And so I'm um, later in this, maybe by two years than I would have liked to have been. You know, I'm 28. I would have mm-hmm. maybe have liked to have had my first short film maybe when I was 26, 25. Um, so two or three years I'm late. But it's better being two or three years late than 10 years late. Right. And if you're making your first short film at 35 – um, that's all well and good. And, and I don't want to, you know, there are people who have done it, but it's, it's like I said, you've got to commit to this. You've got to get to it. Mm-hmm. And if you're scared and you're worried, do it anyway, do it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you've got to get past that. If you really want to do this, then you've just got to get past all that rubbish that your, that your mind tells you, mm-hmm. you know, because your mind's so fickle that you're like, it's like, oh no, don't, don't do it, don't do it, you know, don't worry, don't worry. And then as soon as you get to thirty-five or forty, it'll start giving you a completely different story. Well, why didn't you do it? Right. You know, so fickle. <laughs> you know? So you've got to almost go, look, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm getting on. 
It's terrific advice. And it's essentially the same advice every filmmaker tells me. Every single time I ask a filmmaker that question, they know. <laughs> <laughs> they all, you guys all yeah. say the same thing. Just get on with it. Start yeah. doing it. Doesn't matter if you have a limited budget. If you're scared, just do it anyway with whatever means you can do it and you'll build from there. So great advice. Where can people follow and support your work, George? Well, they can watch The Fragrance Apprentice if they want any fragrance <laughs> advice and uh, want to see a, a, a cinematic interpretation of, of fragrance viewing. Uh, or they can go to um, the Effortless Pictures official Facebook page uh, or Grace Short Film 2021 on Facebook. And they can they can search that and they'll they can like the film. But probably Effortless Pictures is, is better because it will keep you up to date with everything that we're doing. Awesome. I will make sure I have those links in the show notes, George. Thank you so much for sharing your story and coming on the Story King podcast. So that was my conversation with George Atkinson. I hope you enjoyed it. All of his links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to sign up on storykingbooks.com to get your free copy of Kane's Confession. Remember, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, you can visit my website or amazon.com and for less than $5, purchase my latest ebook resource, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the story king. All those links will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of subscribing to it and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or the medium of your choice. And share it with your friends and family on social media. I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Story King podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. Please join us next time. Until then. Until then.